0: Amen. Will you please make your way with me in your Bibles this morning one final time to the sixth chapter of the Apostle Paul's letter written to the Galatians, but we are going to look together at verses 11 through 18. It's Galatians 6, 11 through 18, you can find that passage on page 1145 in your pew Bibles. I thought this week that it would perhaps be best to sort of follow up last week's sermon with what I would consider to be the rest of the story here at the end of this letter to the this letter written to the Galatians. We spent our time last week pointing out the evil or the wickedness of self-righteousness. And we need now to sort of focus in on the remedy to that evil that Paul has gone to to such great lengths to get before us in this epistle. And I hope that if you are someone that has recognized any self-righteous tendencies, that you have found yourself challenged by the word of God to place your faith entirely in Jesus Christ alone to justify you before the throne of Almighty God. You are no longer going to cling to your duties and to your own works as having any merit whatsoever when it comes to the issue of your justification before the face of God. Beloved, we are saved by faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, solely by the grace of Almighty God alone, and not because of anything righteous in and of ourselves. And it's important that we believe that because we will get the Christian life entirely wrong. The truth is, we have nothing to boast of in our salvation. When it comes to keeping the law, the very best of us on our very best days still fall miserably short of following the law enough, of even coming close to keeping it as it demands perfectly. We are in our very natures corrupt. We are depraved, fallen in our father Adam, and because of our condition, it is impossible for us to properly keep the law. So we must rely on another who is able and willing and capable to keep it for us. We have to place our hearty trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who came and lived and was found in the eyes of the holy law of God to be blameless and who willingly went to the cross where he suffered and endured the very wrath of Almighty God being poured out upon him for our sin. He died, he rose again, and he now sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for those of us who truly belong to the household of faith. Those of us who have been called and made into the glorious bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is by the grace of God that we have been saved and it is not by our own vain attempts to please God with our own supposedly righteous behavior. And I know you're probably saying, we know, right? We say it all the time, all the time. And yet, as I mentioned almost every week, I think if I were to go around the church and I were to ask the question, what is it that justifies you before God? I have almost no doubt that all of us or most of us would give something very, very close to the correct answer. But I also know my own heart to wonder, enough to wonder whether we would all mean it with sincerity. The thing that I mention very often from this pulpit is that though we have the witness of the word of God, that self-righteousness is evil, that it causes tremendous harm within the people of God, that it is capable of making shipwreck of faith, there can be no doubt that even though we know these things, that it is alive and well in the church of Jesus Christ today. It is undoubtedly causing harm in the church of Jesus Christ. It's the source of much trouble throughout the kingdom of God. It's the source of division. It's the source of leading some to false hope. It turns freedom into bondage. As many are wooed away from the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ away from his person and his work and told to just get to work on cleaning things up. Get to work on your salvation. We see the efforts and the lengths to which the apostle has gone to try and eradicate self-righteousness from the church of Jesus Christ. And he was abused for it. He was certainly slandered because of it. But he wouldn't back down because Paul knew the danger that this type of thinking posed for the church of Jesus Christ. Beloved, we've seen it in our own day. The struggle continues, doesn't it? Though we are called to love one another, we are called to come alongside of one another. We are called to grieve and laugh and live and even die with and for one another. Though we are called a true Christian community, we often remain separated because of self-righteousness existing within the body of Jesus Christ throughout the world. You know, I mentioned to you last week that when we truly are of the household of faith, that there is something, there is something going on there. Christian community should look a certain way. It should be the place where fingers are only pointed. When those who enjoy pointing fingers have taken the time to first point those fingers properly back at themselves, right? Where the law of God becomes a mirror into my own heart before it becomes a window into my neighbor's. When we all rightly examine our own hearts much more vigorously than we even examine our neighbors. When we are all grieved to see a brother or sister in Christ fall or go into sin. And we quickly come alongside of them, hoping and praying for their complete restoration. Longing for the day when we can worship again with that brother or sister, knowing that repentance has been granted by the grace of Almighty God. This is Christian community according to the word of God. And yet I want to ask you this morning, how recognizable is it to you in your own life? I mean, if we're honest, the church today doesn't really look like this most of the time, does it? Well, why not? What is it that can sort of creep into the church of Jesus Christ and rob us of this kind of loving community? Well, I trust you know that the answer to that question is no different for us than it was in Paul's day. And again, I think we see the importance of this letter to the Galatians. You know, several years ago, I was struck, I mean, absolutely struck by an article that I read in an issue of Table Talk magazine, and it was written by a, a very well-known PCA pastor. And he was dealing with this very letter of Paul to the Galatians, specifically dealing with chapter 2, verse 4, which is talking about the false brothers, the false apostles coming in and spying out the freedom that the church there had in Jesus Christ and doing all that they could in order to lead the Galatians back into the misery of bondage. And he was relating a story from his own time as a pastor when he was going to visit a woman in the hospital that was really on the very brink of death. She was only moments away in the grips of death. She was a charter member of his church And she had heard the gospel message preached every Sunday for well over half a century. And as this man walked into her hospital room, she looked up at him from her bed with tears streaking down her face. And she asked him something that has haunted him for the 37 years he spent serving in the ministry of the word. Only hours from death, she looked at her pastor and she said, John, do you really believe that I have done enough to be saved? Undoubtedly, she was looking for comfort from her pastor that perhaps... He would set her mind at ease by giving her the assurance and the comfort of knowing that she, in her life, through her effort, through her work, through her sacrifice, had accomplished enough in her long life of Christian service to go to heaven. And the question crushed the heart of this pastor. Because brothers and sisters in Christ the only honest answer is no. No. No, you haven't. You haven't done enough. I'm afraid you're still not even close. You will never be able to do enough, to serve enough to be saved. But praise be to God that he in his wisdom And his mercy has sent another to stand in our place, to receive upon himself the judgment that our sin deserves and who in turn gives to us his perfect, unflawed, unspotted, necessary, desperately needed righteousness. One who dies for those who are guilty. No matter how much you try, no matter how much you fight it, It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, to the glory of Almighty God alone, that any of us are saved. You will never work hard enough to merit eternal life. That's the clear teaching of the Bible. So I ask you, do you still think this topic is not well worth repeating again and again and again? Do you still not understand why the Apostle Paul goes through these links to make sure That his beloved flock knows the truth of their justification. Do you still think that the word of God is not speaking to you this morning? Well, I pray that as we close out this sixth chapter of the epistle of Paul to, uh, to these Galatians, this beloved flock. That you too will embrace the truth of his message. That you too will turn away your gaze from yourself back towards Jesus Christ crucified, buried, risen, and gloriously ascended to be your only comfort in life and in death. That by the grace of God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, driving us all into the arms of Jesus, that we would be led back towards the church and find ourselves by the grace of God living our lives, loving one another and not envying one another, not blaming one another, holding others in higher esteem than we hold ourselves. If you have your Bibles this morning, I would ask again, turn with me to Galatians 6 and follow along as I read now from the holy, inerrant, and infallible word of God, Galatians 6, verses 11 through 18. This is Paul speaking. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, These would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And As many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful again for your word this morning. We pray this morning that you would clear our hearts and our minds from the many things that distract us in this life. And that we would give our full attention to your word and hearing the word through the power of your spirit. We would be transformed by that word for your glory. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen. Last week we finished with verse 10. And Paul's exhortation to the household of faith to go and to do good to all, especially to the church of Jesus Christ. He had been telling them, that is, he had been telling the church that they were to love one another. And they were to love one another, not simply in theory, but in action. They were to actively, genuinely love one another. They were to be unified and united with one another. And that they were never to rejoice at the falling or the failing of their fellow believers. They were to consider themselves in what they were really like and then act in compassion and love towards others. Throughout this entire letter, we have this unfolding picture of true biblical Christian community and what it ought to look like when the church of Jesus Christ is living together by faith, as well as a picture that begins to develop of what it should not look like. So it's on the heels of this discussion, in the closing of this letter, that the Apostle Paul says in verse 11, See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. Now many have, I think incorrectly, interpreted this to be Paul's proof. That he was indeed the one who had written this letter to the church and that somehow the size of the physical letters of his handwriting pointed to his own authorship. You've undoubtedly heard that before if you've ever studied the book of Galatians. It sounds good, right? Those who usually hold to that interpretation think that Paul's famous thorn in the flesh was undoubtedly a problem with his eyes in that he wrote with large physical letters because of some speculative problem with failing eyesight. And I think it sounds good. However, I question whether or not that's really what's going on here. In fact, I sincerely doubt that it is. I truly believe at this point in this letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul really is well beyond establishing himself as the author of this letter. I want you to consider just for a moment, what would one of his enemies possibly have to gain by posing as the Apostle Paul writing these things, the clear unmolested truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think the Apostle Paul makes it abundantly clear who it is, who he is, and what he wants to see happen in the church from the very outset of this letter. So, I think he means something entirely different, and that something is far more in line with the rest of the clear context of this letter. Paul is not using here some clever decoder ring kind of language to describe his infirmities. He's not speaking in riddles, he's not ashamed of his infirmities. We do that. We tend to hide our infirmities because we're ashamed of them. We don't like people to see chinks in our armor. It's part of our pride. Paul is not ashamed of them. He does not hide them. We find ourselves living as if the purpose of Christianity is to make us wise enough to cover up our weaknesses. You know what I mean by that, right? Sick? Well... Weak, weak, sinful problems. Well, God blesses my faith just fine. I'm doing just fine. You worry about you. We put on the mask and we continue the masquerade of the so-called Christian life where we never let anyone see us sweat. Beloved, the Apostle Paul is not doing that here. He is hiding nothing. He has not hidden his weakness From any of his hearers. Why would he? What would he possibly have to gain. By hiding his weakness from the people of God. Paul's not seeking money. He's not seeking fame. He's not seeking popularity. He's certainly not seeking to be thought of as much better than he actually was. Why would he hide his weakness with confusing sort of coded language? I think we can rule that out, right? This is the Apostle Paul. So what is he doing here? Paul is reiterating the enormity of the subject at hand and its central, critical, absolute importance for the church of Jesus Christ to both understand and come to grips with. He is seeking to expose these false teachers and not just to rid the church of them but to chase away any and all who would still cling to any other form of righteousness before God than faith in Jesus Christ alone. Beloved, that's a large subject. That's a heavy, weighty subject. And Paul does not allow for even a minute for the Galatians to forget it. He wants them to consider his concern for them. He wants them to consider his anxiety for them. And he wants them to not simply gloss over this letter and miss the central importance of self-righteousness, dying, and life being lived in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he calls their attention to the size of of the content of this letter again. And it's not mere speculation that leads me to say that. I want you to look for just a moment at what he follows this statement up with in verse 11 and 12. He follows up verse 11 with verse 12. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Jesus Christ. I don't want you to miss what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He is not saying these men meant well, but they erred. He's not being generous with these men. He is not commending the false apostles as men who at least showed some godly zeal. No, in fact, it's quite the opposite. Paul is not commending them in any way, shape or form. Rather, he's pointing out why they do what they do. Why do they do what they do? Because they are frauds and cowards. That's why. Frauds and cowards. They are not Christians. They are imposters. They are false apostles. He says, these men desire to make a good showing in the flesh. What a scathing rebuke, right? As if the Christian life were all about making a good showing in the flesh. It would be so much easier. These men love the applause of other men. They love to be recognized by all of the people as the hardy, sturdy members of the church. They love to have their backs padded, to have their swollen ego stroked. Because these men love and live life for themselves. Their religion is entirely a religion of self. Where self is king, and self is the true object of faith. They also love to avoid trouble for themselves. And we have to see that here, right? Look at the end of the verse. Paul tells the Galatians why it is these men seek to simply make a good showing in the flesh by getting the Galatians to become circumcised. It's because they are afraid. They're cowards. And they're afraid. Does that hit a a chord with you this morning? They go with the flow Because they are afraid. They please men because they fear men. They seek to gain the Galatians as converts in the way that the Jewish establishment will not come down on them for it. There'll be no retaliation. They have no boldness, they have no courage. They are men without spines. And why? It's because they do not have faith. We need to hear it, right? They don't have faith. These are not well-meaning men who have erred. They are faithless. They cannot trust in a God that they do not accept as he has revealed himself in his word. They do not have faith and so they cling to other lesser forms of righteousness. Forms that simply will not satisfy for the devastation of their sin. And its hope is false. It's no hope. And their lives prove it. Their lives prove it. They cannot endure persecution like the Apostle Paul because they do not possess the faith of the apostle Paul. They have not embraced the glorious message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul has. So it cannot be their only comfort in both life and in death. They live in fear. They live for self. They cannot love the church because they do not have the bond of faith that drives us towards love for God that becomes expressed in our love for one another. They can't have it. And Paul continues his assault in verse 13. He says, For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they can boast in your flesh. Again, their gods are their own bellies, their own lives, their own comfort. It's not Christianity. Christianity. You Galatians are just another number for them. They only seek to gain you so they can gain more of the praise of men, not because of conviction, but because they themselves know that they do not keep the law. Beloved, have you ever noticed that trait that is almost always present with self-righteousness? Where we will not only put those things before others that we expect them to do, that perhaps we even do, but when our hypocrisy reaches certain heights and we expect of others that they comply with all those areas of life that we secretly fail at miserably all the time. And we hate them when they fail. We take credit when they succeed. It's a human problem, right? We love to have our own backs padded. We love to make others look like we just wish that we looked. Or like we pretend to look. Or like we make ourselves up to look. And I cannot help but to think of the words of Jesus to the Pharisees in the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 23, verse 15, a very well-known verse It's in his assault against the wicked self-righteousness of the Pharisees. Jesus says to them, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel land and sea to win one proselyte, one follower, and then you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. understand, this is what self-righteousness looks like when it is exposed. And brothers and sisters in Christ, it is our prayer that it will be exposed. It is the grace of God to have it exposed. Exposed in our lives, exposed in my life, so that we will all learn to glory only in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's Paul's point here. He says, these men do it to bring fleeting, worthless glory to themselves, but I don't. He says, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul knows that the only boast in the life of those who have truly embraced Jesus Christ and him alone by faith is Jesus Christ. He's the boast. There's no glory for us. The glory is God's and it's his alone. And it is through the atoning work of Jesus Christ that Paul says that the world is now dead to him and he is dead to the world. Because he is alive in Christ. The world seeks and gives the praise of men. But Paul seeks simply to sing the praises of Almighty God alone. And he doesn't care at all for the world and all of its vain promises. By the world, he means anything that is opposed to the wonderful kingdom of God. He means those things that the flesh seeks... Those things have been crucified to him. Paul lays all credit where it's due. At the feet of Jesus. Beloved, do you see? Jesus Christ. His person. His work. That is your boast as a son or daughter of almighty God in and through the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And what a boast it is. The world seeks to allure us with lies, but the truth is, even though we deserve death, we have been given life, abundant life, in and through Jesus Christ. And as a result of that life, we truly have reason to rejoice in Him this morning and every single day of our lives. It is Him that our focus needs to go to. Not upon ourselves and our work, Certainly not upon one another. Paul says, for in Christ, in Christ, Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything at all, but a new creation, a new life, resurrected, powerful, wonderful life in Christ, The argument for circumcision and uncircumcision is swallowed up by the glorious truth of the gospel, which should transform us and make us into new creations. Through the power of the spirit of God, the old man dies and the new man is born. The cares of this world slip away as we focus upon the mercy of God given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we see this? Do we truly believe this? Do we live this in the Christian life? We should be transformed by the word of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. It should change us. And Woe woe to us if we remain unchanged. I'll never forget a rebuke that I heard delivered against a guy who really was a good friend of mine by a pastor of some renown. I would say he was a famous pastor, but he would be insulted by that term. But people knew who this guy was. And my friend was this brilliant guy who devoured books at a rate that was almost inconceivable. I've never seen anyone read like this guy. He had a photographic memory. His memory was almost as amazing as his ability to take in information and process it. The guy was a walking, talking, theological encyclopedia. He was a former friend of mine in seminary. And he tended to always be over everyone's heads. And he spent a lot of his time sort of thinking out loud. We were spending time with this well-known pastor. It was during a conference in Toledo where we were all together following the conference, sitting around another friend's living room, talking and enjoying wonderful fellowship and some really, really good conversation. My friend, I'm going to call him Joe for the sake of recounting this story, a man seasoned with all of the wisdom of, I don't know, maybe 21 or 22 years. He was explaining the deep things of God and scripture to this seasoned pastor. And really, he was just grilling this guy with question after question, trying to trip him up, just for the sake of letting everyone in the room know just how smart he was, just how much he processed, just how many theological tomes he had digested in his life. And this man graciously let this go on for some time. And then this pastor interrupted him. And he very gently, very lovingly looked at my friend full in the face. And he said, Joe, I'm afraid that if you keep reading books, I'm not going to like you very much. And you could have heard a pin drop, right? It seemed kind of an odd thing to say. (laughs) But then he said this, and I'll never forget it. He put his arm around my friend, and he said, "Joe, knowledge without application, without transformation, is just knowledge. It's just knowledge. But knowledge that transforms one's life—that's born out of God-given faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is glorifying to God." And everyone in that room knew exactly what he was talking. We all understood. The only one that Joe really was impressing with his never-ending reference of books, which he had plowed through, through his own efforts, which really was the driving force behind his gathering a wealth of knowledge, his reputation. He was stung by that rebuke. I'm delighted to say that he learned from it. And you say, it's a great story, Steve. What's the point? Beloved, let me ask you something this morning. Are you a new creation after hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or is it just another thing in a long list of things that you think you know? Has it transformed you? Not on the outside, in, But on the inside out, has it changed the way you think and consequently the way you live? Or has it just become more information for a better looking mask? Beloved, the Apostle Paul says that any who walk according to this rule, let peace and mercy be upon them. And upon the Israel of God, upon the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, let peace and mercy be on the true true church, the true household of faith. We really don't even need Paul to say what will be on those who are outside of that group, do we? Verse 17, Paul ends this letter with these parting words, and they're so important. From now on, let no one trouble. For I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, in effect, I've laid the case before you. I have faithfully proclaimed the glorious message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to you. And I have it right. I have pleaded with you to refrain from all forms of self-righteousness. I have shown you the way in which the truly faithful will walk. Now go and live it and stop wasting this life on those who do not need to question me anymore. For I bear the scars of a true disciple of Christ. And what were those marks? What were those scars what was Paul willing to give up for his truth? Imprisonment, chains, beatings, stonings, every other kind of horrific treatment he had ever received as a direct result of standing up for the pure, unadulterated gospel message of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It cost Paul something. But there was nothing on this side of glory that he was unwilling to lay aside for the sake of the gospel. Those are the marks. There was not one whom he would not stand up to fight if they dared to pervert the message that we are justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, by the grace of Almighty God alone. But there were still other marks. Marks like the love that compelled the Apostle Paul to bring the gospel again and again and again to those who were slanderously joining and attacking his character. Beloved, it's convicting, isn't it? Has Paul convinced you to stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because if we do it in faith, if we truly live by faith, then indeed we are brothers and sisters of him. And in him, in Christ, and he says in verse 18, that if we are brothers and sisters, then we can expect the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to be with our spirits. What would Peace Reformed Church look like here in Napoleon, Ohio, if we all truly accepted and expected the things that Paul has so poignantly been declaring in this letter? Beloved, I pray that we will, we will know exactly what it will look like. I pray that we will leave aside the wickedness of self-righteousness that so often creeps up in our lives and tempts us to follow it away, to add something to the gospel, to live for Jesus, and something that I can add to the mix. And that we will embrace the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ alone and live as those who have been transformed by that And I pray that our faith will be witnessed through the way in which we love one another, the way in which you love one another in the years to come as you live before the face of Almighty God. Amen.